0: Hello everyone. Um, So I'm recording this Friday morning and then probably Friday afternoon and then probably Friday evening. It's a really rainy sort of drizzly day out today and I'm going to take advantage of that and pickle and ferment um, probably close to 30 to 40 pounds of asparagus. Um, Things are a little bit out of hand with the asparagus this year but thankfully I love pickled asparagus. I put a little bit of spice in it and it's one of our favorite pickles actually. I don't pickle all that much stuff. I usually ferment stuff but to be frank I don't mind asparagus that's fermented to eat quickly thereafter but over time I just don't it's not one of my favorite ferments it's actually probably one of my least favorite um and of course you can ferment things just to eat them right away or you can ferment things to preserve them and you can do both of course the fermenting things can go both ways but um i i do prefer to ferment things that have a keeping power like as an example cucumbers um, excuse me fermented pickles are a favorite and I can do little jars of them and that's fine with like little baby dills or whatever fermenting them but to keep them long term I have found that I need to use the bigger crocks with the water wells um, I use the ones from Germany. And that way I can just fill them up, make my pickles, and put them into the storm cellar and take them out and sort of fill up a jar and then put that in the fridge for eating As so I, we don't have to go downstairs and get them every time we want to use them. So I prefer um, for things that are more for storage to do them in bigger quantities and then just bring up a jar into the fridge every now and then Uh, same with like uh, we we tend to make bigger quantities of the things we like actually like so i make like a fermented salsa And I'm not a big salsa eater because I have a real problem with nightshades and inflammation, but everyone else here loves them. And the kids will come home and just scoop some out and put it in a jar and bring it home with them. And same thing with that. We'll just put some in a jar and put it in the fridge and fermented carrots too. We really, everyone really likes fermented carrots. So Again, that gets done en masse in the fall, and then we just sort of nibble on them as we go. Also my um, herb salé, which is just salted herbs, which is a way of preserving fresh herbs, which I much prefer than um, using dried herbs, although I definitely dry herbs as well, and they absolutely have their use, but just when I'm making something to eat, a little spoonful of these salted fresh herbs added to it just brightens everything it it it's amazing how much how delightful that is in the middle of winter when things just are quite heavy and things are dried and i mean that's lovely too but it's just nice to have that little spark of, of fresh tasting herbs in your you know whatever you're eating stews or even just scrambled eggs i like them in there Okay, so I, if you hear a series of clicks throughout this recording, that's because I'm answering some questions, pausing and then doing some other things in between. So I apologize that I do not have the technological savvy to remove the clicks, but um, with your good grace, all shall be forgiven. So the first question was from Ashley telling me that she's tried many recipes for ossobuco and she can never get it to be tender or fall off the bone so ossobuco for those of you that don't know is a horizontal cut across the long bone of um, bovine and so you have a little you have of course the marrow and the inside of the bone and then this really tough meat because it's the meat on the leg of the cow that propels it. So it's a really hard-working muscle. It's full full of sinew and tendons and ligaments and um, it's pretty tough stuff. So, um, Ashley, a couple things, it's hard because um, there's a little bit, it's not as easy as just putting the, I have found anyway, the asobuco right into the oven. <clears throat> but you said you've tried the river cottage meat recipe. But here, anyway, here's how I do it, and what I have found is first of all, there can be sometimes um, some asobuco that's a little bit more, if it's from a younger animal and doesn't have that abundance of. Um, the tendons and the ligaments and the sinew that I was mentioning earlier, sort of running through it, it can actually be tougher. Whereas if it's from a more mature animal um, and has an abundance of those connective tissues running through it, it's actually a lot more tender because it is that connective tissue and um, that runs through the meat that when you long and slow cook the meat, melts Um, you know and creates this sort of lubricant among that really tough lean meat and makes everything so tender and so delightful you know so it's the same thing when we long braise roasts that are from those hard-working areas of the animal and then everything just gets so incredibly tender after hours of a low slow oven with a good braising liquid so um, that's the first thing. I'm just wondering, it would be kind of um, interesting to to know if you're, I, I'm not sure if it's your own meat or you're getting it from somewhere and if it's consistently, that would be one thing I would look into. Um, and then, so working around that. Uh, so when I make my osso buko, it's the same as when I make any sort of tougher braising cuts so I will first uh, put a decent amount of fat in the pot that I'm going to be cooking in and I'll brown the meat just season it and brown it uh, on all sides and when I say a decent amount of fat I mean you know don't skimp just (laughs) layer in there and then um after that, you're gonna whatever you're gonna put for your aromatics, your seasonings, your herbs, uh, onions, your garlic, whatever whatever it is you're putting in there, and you're also going to put. Um, I put bone broth. You can put a, a little bit of vinegar, or a little bit of acid with that if you want. I mean, just a few splashes, but definitely bone broth. And um, I guess the other thing that I would ask at this point is what type of pot are you using? So uh, a Dutch oven is, is great for this but laying down um, some parchment paper on top of the meat if, you're, if your pot is quite high or quite deep or too big for the meat um, there can be a lot of evaporation of the liquid. So if you put down a little piece of parchment paper or something on a little bit closer to the meat so that all that evaporation doesn't take place and dry out the meat. Uh, I think that would you know you might want to just sort of do some investigating with the size of your pot that you're using and um, cast iron cooks really lovely but so does there's some types of clays um, ceramics that that would as well but I always use cast iron for this. And then for ossobuco, I'm cooking it at somewhere between 250 and 275 Fahrenheit for, mm, you know, maybe four hours, three, four hours. I'll take it out after about um, three and turn it over and take a look at it and see how it's going and make sure that there's still liquid in there, not soup, but enough liquid and, um, yeah, so anyway, hopefully there's some thing in there that's useful to you. It's not, if you are getting really lean ossobuco, that might be the issue right there though, Ashley, and you might just need to use um, quite a bit more fat, a smaller pot, maybe a lower cooking time for a longer period of time, maybe a shorter period of time, depending on what you're doing. So let me know how it goes, truly. I'd like to hear if any of that helps. And, um, you know, it's worth the effort because when it's all done and you take out that beautiful blob of marrow and smear it across the meat and it's all delicious and tender, it's, it's worth figuring out. So kudos to you for for trying to find the solution to this. Okay, so Modesta is asking me to elaborate on my fruit and berry canning methods and some recipes and she says she's particularly interested in canning or preserving without sugar. Um, okay so <laughs> I think I've mentioned before that I like I won't write out a recipe because I think you know I've explained I, well first of all i don't have a recipe i guess that's one reason but also i've explained um i think Modesta, you're in europe if i remember correctly so there's this weird thing here in north america um, about any recipe is supposed to be following the usda guidelines which i do not so that's just you know waiting for someone to come on my website which really isn't for writing out recipes but you know, like coming on there, following something I do doing it differently, or, you know, there's so many factors, and um, maybe just being new to canning even, and then me being liable for some domestic tragedy. So no, I won't write that out. Um, And it's, and, and again, it's really, I don't have a recipe. But here's what I'll say is, so when I started canning, like, you know, fruit, I followed the guidelines initially to sort of get my rhythm behind me but it you know I'm sure you've it seems like you've already done that but what I started doing is um there was a book that I got from the library holy Hannah, probably 15 years ago and it was something like preserving without sugar canning without sugar something like that It was it's an older book for sure I think it was written in the 70s if I'm correct maybe it's on Amazon or I'm not sure if anyone finds it maybe they can put that in the comments but it was I think it was at that time it might have been for diabetics back when they thought that anything but sugar was okay for diabetics but it was um it gave some pretty good ideas as far as like how to use honey and alternative sweeteners and I started experimenting with that and I remember thinking this is really sweet like I I don't like when I eat fruit to taste sweet over the actual fruit so I started with that and I started dropping the sweetness level and dropping the sweetness level when I was making so you know just as you make uh, a simple syrup I guess when you can fruit let's say we're canning peaches, as an example. Um, and you make your simple syrup with sugar and water, I was doing that with honey and water. And I started dropping that amount of honey to my taste and more and more and more and then I can and I'd be like, well, this is actually still pretty good. And it didn't go rotten after a year. Um, until I sort of built up that confidence to be able to do more and more canning that way and now I don't even think about it I just you know if I'm let's say again using peaches as an example I I actually don't peel peaches either um, because I like the color better when the skin is left on and well um, I'm a really really lazy canner And so I wash them and I can them, I cut them up, put them in, I always put one pit in with my peaches, I put a little squeeze of lemon juice, maybe a teaspoon's worth, and I just make that simple syrup to the sweetness that I like. And so, because the peaches aren't cooked beforehand, I'll give them a water bath of I think fifteen minutes or something, or maybe a bit longer. That part you'll have to check in the book. Don't don't listen to me on that. Um, but for other things, and so I, for some of my fruit, I do do just straight up canning so we get I think I mentioned before I started a buying club probably over 15 years ago now for organic fruit from this one farm in Niagara and I arrange all the pickup and the delivery and the collating orders I do this every summer two or three times a summer and the fruit is beautiful and so but we buy it in you know 25 or 50 pound flats and so it's a lot to get through so I don't want um you know 75 pounds of cherry of okay well there is cherries but you know staying on the peach part you know 75 pounds worth of canned peaches is just so there has to be other ways and that's not how we use the majority of our fruit it's nice to have little canned peaches or canned pears or whatever it is every now and then but honestly that's not how we eat fruit mostly. My preferred way to eat fruit is to make chutneys and um, well I've mentioned mostarda and different sort of savory type condiments to eat with um, meat and meals. So in that case let's say I am making Uh, Last year I made some, staying with the peaches again, I made some peach barbecue sauce and it was so good. Oh lord, I don't even like barbecue sauce but it was, I put some spice in there, I used some Szechuan peppercorns that I foraged and it was just really good. If I pull out the recipe at some point this summer I'll, I'll share it but I don't even remember what was in there but anyways it was fantastic but so when you're making something like that obviously you are cooking it down and cooking it down and cooking it down and I had a 18 liter stock pot going it was full to the top and by the time it's done it's maybe halfway to a quarter full from cooking down cooking down cooking down for hours upon hours upon hours it is steaming hot in that situation and as is and was traditionally done forever and if you get a European cookbook you'll see see that it's still done that way um where you know we're taking sterilized jars after and to sterilize jars I use a very high um Acidic acid vinegar and boiling hot water and then I turn them upside down and put them in my oven at 200 degrees until I'm ready to take them out. I put the barbecue sauce right in there, put them seal them up and leave them on the counter. I just do not understand this um, water bathing them again, but You know like I said in in Europe that's how it's done so to you Modesta this probably just seems well yeah that's what we do but here um, in North America they would actually have you water bath again after doing all that so that's up to everybody else and like I said I think you should get a good foundation in canning before you listen to a word that I say and what I say isn't what you should do it's just what I do so i hope that gives you a little bit more uh insight into how we we sort of do our our fruit and berries like i said there's some that's just preserved straight up with a honey syrup and i'll often put like little things in there like we really like with the peaches i i'll often put cardamom and um, maybe a, a slice of vanilla bean in it which is really nice or, you know, just little little spices like that, maybe uh, some star anise and pears, or, I mean, obviously the, the options are endless for how you like to eat that, but as far as like the majority of my canning, it's it's definitely making sort of chutneys, plum sauces, just different things like that, so that in the winter when we are eating the, you know, beef and these our meat, you know, duck, goose, all the things that we eat, deer. Uh, it's truly a, just a different meal depending on what sort of chutneys and st- bone broth I put in with it. It's super easy once you have all this stuff made to be eating pretty basic foods, which is how we eat. And changing it up radically just by what you braise it with, and I do braise it with those things. So, as an example, um, I always make this plum sauce, which is pretty sauce, uh, spicy and vinegary, and um, just lovely. We love it, and I can I'll put a bit of that on with the duck as I'm cooking it, and then I'll reserve some and put that on on the top after it's done and of course because there's vinegar in there it's also tenderizing the meat and so that's the majority of the way of how we eat those things And just the last part of this question here was um, experiments with maple syrup and could I be more precise? Um, I definitely will report back on that. So for everyone else that doesn't know, what we did this year is when we tapped our trees, I cooked down the maple water, the sap, which is just like water. It tastes like a very diluted water, basically. Um, I cooked it down, but I didn't cook it down all the way to maple syrup. I cooked it down to 50%. So what I ended up with was a very sweet tasting water. And my plan is, this is my big experiment. So when I can my fruit this year, I'm going to use some of that maple 50% percent waterish ish syrupy-ish. It's still, it's just sort of clean still watery um, and use that instead of a honey syrup I'm going to use that instead to can some of my fruit the things that I think maple would go good with because it does have a maple flavor for sure so what I did was when I cooked it down I actually canned it after I sealed it up into jars and when i go to do my fruit this year i'm gonna pull out those jars upon jars upon jars of that very very sweet maple syrup not maple syrup maple water maple quasi syrup maybe and add it to the fruit i'm gonna heat it up and add it to the fruit just as i do when i make a honey syrup and we'll see how it goes if this works i'm so excited by this idea I'm telling you maybe someone else has had it in the history of the world but uh, it's definitely um, came to me from the heavens and I'm super excited by it I really hope it works because if it works this could just be such a boon to us because we both we had bees on our first farm and we still have a bit of honey left over from that but I stopped raising bees because they were, well, they were displacing our our native pollinators, the honeybees. And I think honey is wonderful, but it's not native to where we live. And um, we're bringing in bees from different continents to make us our honey. And I'm just not sure how I feel about that. Uh, well, I am sure I have. have questions so anyways we're not raising bees but maple quasi maple syrup water stuff yeah there's possibilities here but like I said I will report back and I think more than making it I'm sure it will taste fine the question is going to be will it preserve it well and that part remains to be seen so but If you remind me I will definitely share with you what I learned and how things sort of unfold during the winter with its uh, preservation abilities. Okay Christine is asking um, she lives a suburban life and dreams of owning land someday but she's asking how I recommend that she connects deeper with where her food comes from. Uh, She says, as wonderful as our farmers are, even they have fallen prey to the modern world and offer cuts of meat year round, as well as eggs and milk. I'm intentionally trying to live and eat more seasonally. Any suggestions for how to do this when living in the suburbs? Thank you. Um, I really like this question, Christine. I'm always trying to show people the seasonality of food, even animal foods, because I think that A lot of farmers are compelled to meet the demands of eaters. And I think that the more people um, that aren't on farms but are supporting their farmers that understand this, uh, we can start emulating it a little bit better. If the demand's not there, you know, for people to be able to come and buy two pounds of meat a week, then then the farmers will happily switch things up. It's trying, and it it is a lot of pressure on a farmer as well to try and meet those conveniences that grocery stores artificially meet. And then, you know, same with prices, of course, there's the huge subsidies on these commodity foods, and then people don't understand why a farmer that's raising animals and produce can't meet those prices or they think their prices are inflated when in fact they're just not receiving the subsidies that the corporate farmers are so as far as you know what your farm is doing I think whatever they're doing they're doing but for you I think that you can still eat seasonally and so you have obviously some knowledge around eggs and milk and so you can just emulate that in your own life in a personal way maybe you're not eating as many eggs in the winter maybe using them as like a little bonus here and there or same with milk maybe fresh raw milk you're not consuming it continuously instead maybe moving to cheeses that have been preserved like you know just thinking about what and how those foods would be preserved from the growing season, the season of abundance, and then how you might switch them up getting some of those nutrients still in but just not consuming them in the same way. So maybe, you know, when you get eggs in abundance in the summer, maybe you can pickle some of them, maybe you can preserve some of them and then just just not allow some scarcity some forced scarcity into your winter time you know eating plans I think that would be a pretty good way and as far as like connecting deeper with where your food comes from um, I don't know what your life is like but if you have the ability to volunteer on one of your farmers farms once a week once every two weeks whatever it is I really recommend it really do I everywhere that we before we ever had our farm and we were buying from farmers we always volunteered on the farm sometimes it was just like four hours in a morning every couple weeks or sometimes it was once a week or twice a week just depends however your life is set up but to be able to do that to be able to do that on a variety of different farms to get yourself dirty to have that same soil that Grows, nourishes, holds the food that you are consuming underneath your fingernails. Um, it's important. I think it builds resonance with the food that you are eating. And I think it helps you to, yeah, just to exactly what you're asking for, to connect in that deeper way to where your food comes from. There's also, I'm not sure where you are, but oftentimes there's farm open house days, and it may not be the farm that you're maybe getting your food from, but it might be good for you to meet some other farmers to get out of the city, get to the rural places. I know it's effort, and um, but it's worth it. It's really worth it to just be putting some of your physical labor and energy into the food that you consume is a pretty powerful thing, you know, and to be able to do that even though you don't have your plot of land yet, you can still do that now. And I I really encourage you to look into that if it's something that you can work out in your life. Okay, so since my last question, I've run to the hardware store to buy some bolts. I've had tea and, and just wonderful talk with a friend of mine on the porch and the most beautiful flock of, Goldfinches were all about us letting themselves be known. And I've got my vinegar vinegar warming up for my asparagus. I was supposed to get to the freezers today. This is the time of year where I amalgamate freezers um, from five into I think I can get them into two, definitely three, and then I'll shut off the other ones. Um so, I digress and we shall now progress. Um, So, Carla is asking what I use conifer tips for. Uh, So, for conifer tips right now, uh, juniper is what we have most abundantly here at this time of year. There's not, there is spruce, but not a lot of spruce where I am. So what do I use them for? Um, I dry them and then I also make a salt with them and then the ones that I dry I'll use in different seasoning blends that I make in the fall so throughout this time of year and then into fall I'm um, collecting and then drying different um, herbs and plants for different taste profiles and I'll just bottle them up put them in jars separately and then come fall once harvest is done and I have time on my hands I make seasoning blends and um, some of those you know just looking up recipes online and then a lot of them is just kind of playing around it's fun just to play around with no real set prescription of what you're supposed to do I know a lot of people um, are use conifer tips and you can uh, soak them in honey, you can make syrups out of them. I don't tend to do that basically because we're not um, eating a lot of sweetener, if any. So probably have a better luck finding other ideas, Carla, on some foraging websites uh, than me on that one. All I do mostly is salt and then dry them for those blends I mentioned. Um, And then my favorite ways to cook goat meat, I usually get goat from an old retired dairy goat so it's really leaner and tougher than your average goat but also just incredibly flavorful which is what I love in meat I like very strong tasting meat I think meat should taste like have the terroir of where it's from and should taste of the grasses and how it lived its life Um, so for me I'm always cooking goat In either I've marinated it for a while and then um, cooked it usually it's braising to be honest my The way that my friend that I buy the goat from butchers the meat she knows that I am pretty much braising everything so I'll get like the whole rack of ribs and the legs whole everything of course and always bone in because that's where the flavor comes in that's where the tenderness is and so that's basically how I'm doing all of my goat meat. I don't think goat lends itself very well to a quick sear. And I'm just thinking of different cuts. And I don't think so. The other thing is one of my favorite things to eat in the whole wide world is goat neck. So highly recommend that when you butcher your goats that you set aside the neck meat, whether you eat that sort of just as a whole as a roast. It's not very big, but it's just It's absolutely wonderful. And goat also, of course, makes the most wondrous curry. I think goat curry. I, when I was growing up, one of my best friends was uh, from Jamaica. Her mom just cooked the most amazing Jamaican food and it was my favorite food to eat as a teenager. Um... And she was just so delighted that I loved her food. So she would always make me the most wonderful curries with goat. And I think that was actually the first time I had goat was eating it at her place. And I just thought it was the most delicious thing. And my friend couldn't stand her mother's food, of course. I bet she's changed her mind since then. But um, yeah, curry goat, whether it's like sort of a uh, East Indian curry or... Jamaican, I just think Jamaican, if you're into that type of food and that spice, it's fabulous. So I had to stop and reread this question a few times. Um, Luella asked me uh, a good question about um, how we or how they as a young family with so many demands and bills and a mortgage can afford good quality food and filtered water and all of those expensive things. Luella then goes on to say that they live on a farm and raise a lot of their own food, and then the challenge comes in being able to afford to farm in a holistic ancestral way. I asked for a little bit of clarification around what she means by holistic ancestral lifestyle, and she just clarified um, what used to be done pre-industrialization, not tied to modern systems, and then on being able to afford... Um, always eating organic and installing expensive water systems to have good water how exactly do you know what good water systems are and then says that they raise their own food but the soil was damaged from before them and they sell meat to the consumer but they're committed to farming organically but they cannot outpace what the market is willing to pay so Luella I'm I'm kind of a picture is painting itself in my head here and if I have it wrong then by all means comment on what I'm sharing here and clarify but so from what I'm understanding is you're on a more conventional farm I think um and you're wondering how to get to more of a uh holistic way of farming is that is that right am I on the right vibe there um I'll share with everyone else. So before we ever had our farm, and this is like, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, at this point, I used to volunteer on farms. And one of the things, so all types of farms, I would go on vegetable farms, uh, CSA farms. Farms that had farm stands there, farms that were huge um, vegetable farms that were producing for a lot of the province that we live in. I went to farms where the owners were vegans and were just so unbelievably restrictive with everything on the farm. It couldn't have ever even had a whiff of an animal near it. I went to farms that were, I'd say more conventional. I was on dairy farms that were illegally selling raw milk that probably shouldn't have been selling that raw milk uh, because it, well, raw milk does not have to be handled with kid gloves. it does need some precautions. And I'm a strong believer that all animal foods should come from healthy animals. And I wouldn't say that farm practiced in that way. As you can see, I'm trying to be very politically correct in my observations. I've been and worked on farms where, and I'll tell you that I would say, I would put my money on this, that the majority of farms and I'm not talking about smaller regenerative farms, but the majority of farms do not actually feed themselves. It's amazing to see how many farms actually don't raise food. They raise commodities. And out of the medium-sized farms that are raising more of a conventional sort of feeding into the conventional system, a lot of times they're doing one thing Uh, just because of economics, or they might be doing a couple things, but it's very, it's more common than not that those farms are not feeding themselves. And um, I've actually been really disappointed over the years, for years now, where I've gone to our farm organization, and the food that they're feeding there is from Cisco, which in Canada... I think most people know that's just a huge commodity distributor, uh, distributor of commodity foods in Canada. So they'll feed like, you know, Cisco delivers to universities and hospitals and a lot of times restaurants too, to be honest. And, um, you know, instead of at a farm meeting, people bringing in their food or sourcing from local farms is just much easier to bring in. These commodity foods from a big distributor. So, Luella, <laughs> what I think you're asking, and if I'm, like I said, if I'm wrong, tell me, but you're, when you say that uh, you want to, how it's possible to have holistic ancestral farming, the way it was done pre industrialization and not tied to modern systems, I mean, what a huge question that one is! I would strongly recommend uh, looking into um, maybe just starting with Acres USA, which is a great publication. They they deliver a they have a magazine that comes out every month. They have a fantastic convention. We used to go to them before we had our own farm. And it's all about regenerative agriculture. And I think that's what you're asking about. Um, It's about, you know, how, how we can have profitable farms that are taking care of the animals and the land and us. Because if you're living on a farm and not feeding yourself, I think there's something askew personally. I mean, you don't have to be feeding yourself 100%. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that, you know, I know people actually who have farms. And this also is not all that uncommon, where they'll set aside a couple beef animals or a couple dairy animals that are treated differently. And when I say treated, I don't mean nice. I mean, they are actually fed differently and possibly housed differently because they're going to be for the farmer. Um, I've actually been on harvest, animal harvest with mobile slaughter, where there'll be one or two animals that have been set aside and fed some special feed or better feed than the other animals that are going off to a feedlot. And uh, they're kept in a separate pen and they're harvested... By mobile slaughter which is a lot more humane and a lot less stressful and that goes to feed the farmer's family so I guess we need to we need to be able to have profitable farms, I understand that, but I think that if these are questions that you're asking, there's so much bigger than anything I can offer up here other than to say, you know, there's so many books, so many resources on regenerative agriculture and that's not just for people that wanna do it smallest scale, you know, maybe just a, a few items of food here and there, maybe a backyard garden, Um, All the way to homesteading for the idea of self sufficiency, which I've said before, I don't like that term, but the idea that your farm can entirely feed you and your family. And then it, you know, the scale just keeps getting wider where you start ending up uh, feeding dairy or beef or pork or whatever it is into the system, uh, or maybe even just having a piece of that system that you're plugging into. So I'm not sure exactly where you're at. But I would say that ancestral and holistic to me, uh, ancestral eating means unprocessed food, real food. And if you're on a farm, you have every possibility of doing that, however that looks, whether, like I said, you're setting aside some food, whether you're changing up what you're doing, because it's not sitting right with you. I'm just not sure on that part. But it sounds like you have every ability to do that. And and maybe that means an evaluation of how you can tap into local markets and be uh, marketing yourselves in a way to the people that appreciate and understand the distinction of a quality of food that you're selling rather than trying to meet the prices of commodity beef, which are, or dairy or whatever it is that you're selling pork, I don't know, which of course is highly subsidized. Um, A lot of, I think there's been a lot of forward momentum as far as that goes, a lot of people are eating and uh, from their local systems more and more, maybe not enough, but it's definitely been growing. And in order to support our local farmers, we have to also understand the true cost of food. And that cost of raising animals is only increasing and will continue to increase as the powers that be try to, uh, well, what are they trying to do right now? Um create food shortages and uh, increase fuel prices and everything else that's going on. That all affects our food, too. And so we all have to be having these conversations about what it is to grow and raise real food. Otherwise, uh, we'll just all be eating crickets if they have their way. So I hope that answers your question somewhat. And as far as the water systems go, I don't know what the expense of water system is that you have to install. I don't have a water system. I, I'm. Are you? Is that because there's something wrong with your water? Uh, for everyone else, I highly recommend. And in fact, if you're looking at property, one thing that you should do is first and foremost is just check into the water have the water tested and when I say tested not the lousy bacteria count test that they have to do by law but the full gamut water test and we actually do that every three years here so it tests for you can get different ones from different laboratories they can test for agricultural runoff like glyphosate and other herbicides they can test for heavy metals. They can test for all sorts of things. So we, like I said, we do it every three years and our water, we have, we're very blessed to have beautiful water. We don't have any sort of water system at all. We just have a deep well and and then structure our water as before we drink it. This is not... Uh, question, but it's just such a beautiful comment from Michelle that I'm going to read it anyways. Uh, Michelle says, I had just done evening chores and all the animals were tucked away, fed, watered, and secure. I went into my evening sauna and started to listen to this essay. My husband called from the front porch about four minutes in. He wanted me to come see a double rainbow, so I pressed pause and went out to sit on his lap. We looked at the beauty of it together married 39 years this summer 39 years oh just love that that's why they've been married 39 years because michelle shut it off and went and sat on his lap i um just get i just love having these conversations with other couples who have been married for a long time i find it so inspirational to listen to happy couples, not just people that have been married a long time and miserable, anybody can do that if they want to sell their soul. But just listening to couples that have been together and are really happy and that share what's worked and what hasn't worked. I think our culture is perverse around marriage. I think there's just so much BS, this whole ridiculous notion of you know, women were taught from such a young age that Mm-mm, we are women and men have to bow to our glory and men are being raised even now, more now than ever to bend and acquiesce to the illuminated woman and it doesn't work. And, you know, the other idea, and I've written about this affair a bit is the idea that we are two individuals and in order for us to have a healthy relationship, we have to each preserve our autonomy at all costs and make sure that we're doing all the right things for ourselves. And it's just a really narcissistic, individual, uh, destructive way of approaching marriage. So, I'm going to do a discussion thread next Wednesday that I'll put out and I'm just going to ask that people that have been married for a while and it doesn't have to be 39 years like Michelle but things that maybe we were sold as what works in marriage and that we're either finding out now or have found out don't work and things that we were surprised by that do work and sort of the humility and observation and excavation that goes into making marriage work. And so, yeah, I just wanted to read that little bit and say uh, next Wednesday we'll do a discussion thread. And so I hope both people that have, you know, couples that have been around the block a couple times will put in their little bits and maybe younger couples who just want to, blow away some of the chaff of the uh, story we've been sold on what makes marriage work in our incredibly high divorce rate culture. So we'll do that on Wednesday. Okay, so Cassandra's questions, uh, she's asking about Darina Allen's process to infuse ice cream by adding flowers and then heating the milk gently to just below boiling point and letting it steep for 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and then she's saying, you know, is that what I do? And that she doesn't think I would heat the milk. Uh, I do heat the milk sometimes, Cassandra, and I don't worry about it, to be honest. <laughs> so I all we do is drink raw milk. So there's two ways you can make ice cream. One is not making the custard first. So you're just using the raw milk, the raw egg yolks, whatever it is that you're using. If you wanna do that and infuse it with flavor, uh, I use both of these methods, by the way. So if you wanna do that and infuse it with flavor, I recommend bringing it to room temperature and then adding in whatever you're adding in, what can we be adding in? Let's add in some milkweed flowers, which is delectable, by the way. So bring it to room temperature, add those, leave it out for a couple hours, and then I put it in the fridge overnight. And by the next day, you should have pretty good flavor. Another way you can do it is to sort of make an extract with the flowers themselves. So you can actually cook the uh, flowers in a little bit of, of milk separate from the rest of the raw milk, just like she explains to, you, and then add, the, add it to the bulk of your ingredients, which is gonna be the raw, cold milk. And then again, leave that overnight. And then, The other way you can do that is to just do what she says. So I don't bring it just under the boiling point. I just warm the milk. And when I see steam coming off it, which may be below boiling point, I'm not sure. But when I see it start getting steamy, that's when I take it off. I add the flowers, and it goes in the fridge overnight. So if that kills off some enzymes in the cream, then that's okay. I get all those enzymes all the time. So like I said, those are the three different ways I make the ice cream. You will definitely, the most delectable, creamy, familiar type of ice cream will always be making a custard first, sort of as you're describing, and then leaving it, I leave, like I said, I leave the, that infused overnight in the fridge and it will always be the most luxurious of them sometimes if you just use the cream without making the custard it's still quite good it's just not going to be as silky and dense as uh, the other way of doing it what kind of stove do i have i have a wood stove yes i do but my main one for cooking, so in the winter, I do use my wood cook stove, I have two wood stoves, one's a cook stove and one's not and I do use my wood cook stove as my main one for cooking. But in the summer, my stove is a gas electric combo. Uh, the gas is actually propane, not natural gas. We don't have natural gas where I live. Am I worried about air pollution? No, because I live in a hundred 70-ish year old house 165 68 years and proper ventilation is not an issue in old houses at all actually (laughs) so why did I go with what I did because propane burners are the best thing to cook with and electric stove oven is the best thing to cook with do I have a dishwasher machine I do what kind of soap do you use I use this one called 7th generation I tried making my own and I wasn't as happy with it and there was with the animal fat it was clogging up part of uh one of the drain valves I it just didn't um, melt in properly probably because I don't use a scalding hot water in there so I just use the 7th generation like a eco one and Cassandra snuck in another question so do I store bone broth after they've been cooked no never before making broth without plastic so all of my bones all of my bones go into plastic bags I have uh, the biggest chest freezer and three quarters of it is bones and there is no way I could ever wrap all of those bones in paper first of all you have to do a double layer maybe triple with bones because they'll penetrate the paper it would be a huge waste of that much I use um freezer baggies and that's the best I can do there's really um There's no jars or anything like that you can do. But I will say, I'm not sure why people throw away freezer bags. If you get the heavy duty ones, they can be reused. uh, So if I put bones in them, once I take the bones out, I just wash them, I drain them, dry them upside down on like an empty jar or something, and they get reused uh, for next year's bones. So hopefully that answers your question, Cassandra. Uh, Linda asks if I will share my method for making homemade vinegars. Yes, I will indeed do that. I am going to start making vinegars probably in the next few weeks, and I'll put something up here for sure, showing you whatever it is that I make at the time. I'll also tell you, Linda, if you're really into making vinegars, and I love making vinegars. I have many books, and a lot of them are lousy because they basically, even though it's a book like making vinegar from scratch and then every single one of the recipes is like start with apple cider vinegar and then put in these flavorings and you've got homemade vinegar. That's not homemade vinegar in my book. Homemade vinegar is starting with water and whatever your plant matter is and whatever your sweetener is that's going to feed it to get it well on its way to alcohol which you then go past that point into vinegar just as wine turns into vinegar, if it's not stopped. Um, So I will definitely put what I do, because it's kind of a lackadaisical way, but it works really well. And I will mention to you that, like I said, if this is something that's really interesting to you, Kristen or Christine, I think it's Kristen Shockey has a really good book, As well, for anyone from beginners to advanced that really want to get into making their own homemade vinegars, which I think everybody should. It's an incredible way to add diversity to your meals. Vinegars, homemade vinegars, are really healthy. They're absolutely delicious. You just, until you make your own homemade vinegar, you will not believe the difference between that and the store bought burn out your sinus type vinegars and you can make you know it's fine you can take peaches and put them in apple cider vinegar and call it peach vinegar but it's not really it still tastes like apple cider with a peach sort of undertone but you can actually make peach vinegar and it's totally different than anything that you could buy and I I highly recommend playing around with it it's a big part of our A big part of our diets, a big part of how I cook, I deglaze pans with vinegars instead of wine uh, with bone broth and vinegar. I add it to things to brighten up the flavor and yeah. So I will share when I make it, but in the meantime, if it's something you really want to dig into, I highly recommend that book, Linda. Okay, and I'm back from another little break. I had to go outside and do chores, and I also got my fermenting asparagus down. I was hoping to have it all done today, but a bunch of things came up, and so I got the fermented little odds and ends going. That's the picture that I'll put up with this, so that's just... The little end bits not the completely dried out bits which none of ours were but the end bits that you have to cut to make sure that they're all the same size to pickle or ferment them and those end bits I just um, make a brine and that's uh, a gallon of water to three quarters of a cup of salt and I recommend just making that to start with if you're just learning to ferment and taste it and see how salty that is um, you need a certain amount of salt to ferment things. But you don't need to go overboard and make it unpalatable. So I took all the little ends and I put them in a fermentation crock with Szechuan peppercorns, which I forage here. It's from the um, prickly ash tree. It's a really neat little lemony, it just smells like beautiful citrus. And it has um the same effect that Sichuan peppercorns do which is when you eat them the heat I know there's a Chinese word for it but I don't know how to say it but the type of heat is like a numbing heat on the tongue uh the, I, I love those those little berries and I, I dry a whole bunch in the fall and use them in all sorts of things so anyways I fermented the little end bits of the asparagus with the Sichuan peppercorns with some garlic bay leaves Um, what else did I put in there some grapevine leaves Uh, we have wild grapevine here that I put into my ferments because it keeps things crispy works fantastic for cucumbers fermenting cucumbers into pickles I always use grapevines you can use oak leaves too but we have an abundance of, of grapevine So let's get to the next couple questions here. I think we're pretty close to getting to the end. Uh, So there's a question here about reusing bones for bone broth. If I do a second process with that, with them, I do not. There's nothing left of value in those bones once I've made bone broth. And I do make a, at least a 24 hour bone broth. So there's really nothing left in there. What I do with the bones after the bone broth is, there's if there's meat and sort of that gelatinous tissue and stuff like that on it they go out to the chickens and they'll completely pick them clean and then from there I'll take them and I bring them out to the wilds and the birds and the wild beasties can pick through them and eat them as they want to until they break down and go back down into the soil Okay, so the last question is from Liz, and Liz is asking about how I was able to still have command, still be effective in the kitchen sort of food part of feeding our family when I was really in the thick of Lyme disease and asking sort of for my reflections on how I was able to keep up with nourishing our family and healing myself during that time so I wish that I had some simple and succinct things to offer you Liz but I think it was just taking things day by day really because there was times and I'm sure you're feeling the same way that you know you mentioned you're not well right now you're you're getting there but you're you know, depleted and your body's going through some health issues. And that can be very, I mean, it's, it's easy to give you all these little bullet points of what works, but it's exhausting. And it can feel really insurmountable at times. And I my heart goes out to you and everyone that has to deal with these things because ultimately as i'm sure you know um, we have to fix ourselves we have to heal ourselves we have to do the things that have to be done and when you feel lousy it's just the last thing you feel like doing it would be wonderful to be rich and just have someone come and (laughs) pamper you and help you with all these things but That's not the way it goes for most people and our gift is that we at least have paths in front of us that are hopeful and that we can follow. At least we have that. I think there's a lot of people that are very sick and are just clueless and don't have any ideas of what they can do or even that they can help themselves. It still amazes me that I speak to people who tell me that food has nothing to do with how they feel. And, you know, they'll tell me how awful they're feeling or that they have brittle diabetes. And when I try and start suggesting things, if they seem interested, it's just amazing how that's not something they're even willing to entertain because of their experience or the people around them or their upbringing or whatever. So, Yeah, there's definitely gifts in that and it's a big responsibility too. I understand that completely. For me, I have such a clear and aggressive reaction to food that for a long time made me feel a little bit, you know, pissed off because How come they could eat that? Or these people can eat all this stuff and they're doing fine. And I have one bite of one thing and I just, the inflammation in my body was outrageous. But you kind of get over that. And now I'm just grateful because I do speak to people now too who say, I don't have those reactions. And I think that being able to have these clear messages around food is really what helps me and helped, past tense, me to make sure that those foods were the foods that we were eating. I just knew that if I wasn't eating those foods, I wasn't going to get better. And like I said before, I... I'm blessed that I was eating an ancestral-based diet, I, we hadn't been eating a lot of foods that really particularly caused me issues like grains for a decade before I even got Lyme, so, and I was, I was further ahead I think than a lot of people that have to start from a standard American diet. But even so, like things that I was able to sort of get away with before became less and less, and I think a lot of you here know that for a couple years I went on a solely animal-based diet, and that really was profound for me, and profound both in my healing, but also profound in my understanding of my body's messaging it sort of like blew out all that extra kind of static and allowed me to tune right in with clarity around the foods that worked for my body and didn't work for my body and most profoundly is it reset it's like a recalibration of your body's messaging it's for me if i eat let's say uh sweets when I say sweets, I always just mean like, you know, maybe fruit (laughs) or something with some honey in it or something with some maple syrup in it. I'm not talking about grains or I'm not talking about junk food because I just don't, that's not even a possibility, um, for me. But if I do eat that stuff, I'll start craving that stuff more. And that's a whole other topic because, um, I do have a background in like sort of sugar addiction type tendencies and when I say sugar again I'm talking about these natural sweeteners blah 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 but what I really noticed when I went on just an animal based diet is that I just started craving liver and craving kidney stuff that had never happened to me before and I wonder like if our body is able to give us clear messaging when there's these foods that are just so powerful to the dopamine levels in our brain can our bodies really say oh you know I need some extra (laughs) choline could you send me an egg when the dopamine's like and give me more of that stuff that gives me a hit I don't know I I'm I'm not convinced that we can add certain foods into our diet and expect to receive clear messages. And maybe that's just my body, but... So that's my long rambling answer, Liz, to say to you that I did it because I had to do it. There was no option. Having said that, I think a lot of what I do and it's not just around this, but it was around feeding my kids when they were small and everything is applicable to also really being helpful to when you're not feeling well. And that's making big batches of soup with bone broth. It's making braises. I would put a uh, braised roast in the oven or sorry, in the slow cooker at night before I would go to sleep and then cut up some rutabaga or you know a bunch of onions or carrots or whatever and in the morning I'd take out the kids thermoses and put everything in there and they had hot stew um, for lunch and I would make enough of everything that we would have leftovers at least two meals out of a, a meal so that would save time in the kitchen as well and, you know, if I'm going to ferment something, I'm going to ferment much more of it. If I'm going to cook it, I'm going to cook a lot more of it and maybe even freeze some of it so that when something comes up or if I was having a really bad day and I just didn't have it in me, there was frozen meals that could just be thrown in the oven. Just those sorts of things. I, If there's something more specific that you want me to talk about, um, Liz, you can just leave it in the comments too, and I could try and be more specific for you. But there really wasn't any exact little pointers I can give you. It was just more of an approach to continuing to eat the way that we did. Nobody else in our family was going to cook those meals, just lack of mm, experience and knowledge mostly. And i needed to eat those meals so i just had to figure out ways to get around that and so i just kept doing what i had always done and like i said it it really saves you when you're feeling really awful to just be able to pour some frozen bone broth in a pot and maybe put some stew meat in there and a few spices and whatever and you know you're going to have a nourishing meal soon enough so yeah, it was just more of those sort of practices more than anything else. And Liz just answered her question by saying that she loves the bullet journal. I'm so glad you love it. I know it's fantastic and carving out blocks of time. It's, it's. The whole reason I think I get things done, I'm just, I have a mind that jumps from one thing to another. And if I have something written down in a schedule like that, it it just saves our day, uh, both my husband and, and I, and we can line up our journals together. And it's just a fantastic way to both be productive and to also carve out blocks for things like go have a tea with my husband on the porch, you know, and just be able to plan and massage a day into what you want it to be and the vibe you want to have and the pace that you want to have. So at the end of the day, if I followed my my schedule and my bullet journal with my time blocks, I've had a successful day. And even if there's still 5,000 things to do around the farm, which there always is, I don't have to look at all those things and feel like, I'm never going to get ahead of them because I've accomplished all the things that I've written in my my bullet journal and in my time blocks. And so therefore it was a success. All right, them's the answers to your questions. I hope that there was something useful in there for everyone. And I hope you all have a beautiful weekend and we'll talk to you again. Bye.